This is AmericasWebRadio.com. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. Once again, we find ourselves talking about ethanol. But we're talking about ethanol this week because of a brand new report that was released, uh, authored by John DeChico, who is the University of Michigan's Energy Institute research professor. And he wrote a study that he talked to us about on America's Voice for Energy back in May. And uh, I ran across his work uh, looking for experts back at the time because the EPA had just released its 2017 blending requirements. And Dr. DeChico had been given testimony uh, in Congress about that, and I found comments of his then, reached out to him. He was gracious enough to get back to me. And he was on the air with us here at America's Voice for Energy at that time. Then he told us about a study that was going to be coming out. Well, since then, it has come out. His study is called Carbon Balance Effects of U.S. Biofuel Production and Use. Frankly, not a very sexy title, but it does kind of explain what it is. The more sexy title of, of his work that has been picked up by the media is Ethanol is Worse for the Environment Than Gasoline. So, John, thanks for joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. You're welcome, Marita. Great to be here. Thank you. Your, your report for me, frankly, as a non-scientist, was way over my head, but I appreciate that you were willing to spend an hour on the phone with me Friday evening so that I could understand um, what what the report really said. So I'm great, grateful that you're joining us so that you can uh, do the same thing for our listeners. But before we get into your specific report, if we could, let's do a little bit of background on to why ethanol is why we're even discussing this why this is a problem where it came from and, and so forth sure well you know this is one of those things that goes back to the first um, energy crisis back in uh, 1973 uh, thereabout when as I like to put it uh, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia kicked sand in Uncle Sam's face <laughs> by <laughs> imposing an oil embargo um, and uh, you know, at that time, uh, you know, we had gasoline lines in some areas. The price of gasoline went from the kind of price that I knew when I was a kid pumping gas of 20-something cents a gallon to... Yes, I remember that, too. ...in those days. Um, and at that point, the country kind of went into a panic, and, you know, politicians did all sorts of things. Some of them were... Some of them were useful. Some of them were good. Uh, others, I would say, were questionable. Uh, but that was a... So, pr so probably well-intended. Everything was well-intended. Uh, although when you have something like this, it's also an opportunity for lobbyists of certain interests to uh, come to Washington and say, hey, I've got a solution for you. And uh, one of the lobbies that is, you know, always well positioned in Washington is, of course, you know, the agricultural lobby. And, you know, in many ways with good reason. We all depend on food and growing food is a good thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, they said, well, hey, let's, um, let's make ethanol out of corn instead of relying 
on petroleum, which uh, we're, we've gotten too dependent on the Middle East for obtaining. So the history really does go back. And at that point, a lot of subsidies were put in place, very generous subsidies uh, for um, making uh, ethanol and uh, putting it into the fuel largely in low blends. So that stayed that way for a bunch of years. And, of course, after that first oil crisis sort of settled down and, you know, things returned to more normal, um, you know, the country didn't get another big wake-up call on the issue of our entanglements uh, around oil in the Middle East until, tragically, 9-11-2001. And that brought, you know, the energy security concern back home to America in a very... Um, uh, very real way. ...happy way, tragic way. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, that, uh, of course, happened... Um, you know, under the uh, in the early years of the G.W. Bush administration, and uh, again that put um, energy policy back on the table in a big way in Washington. And once again, the um, you know ethanol lobby, and I think there was good intentions a lot of some people, but other people is you know purely a financial interest. Hey, this mm-hmm. is a great opportunity for us to expand our subsidies and maybe even get. Uncle Sam to mandate ethanol in the fuel. So almost right away in um, early 2002, there were bills put into Congress uh, proposing that ethanol now become mandatory in our motor fuel. Um, I was in Washington at that time before I was at the university working for a green group called the Environmental Defense Fund, and uh, that that year, 2002, I co-wrote um, with another colleague there our position statement on the ethanol mandate saying that it was a bad idea. We said, hey, from an environmental perspective, from other perspectives, this is not a good thing. Uh, of course, voices like ours were kind of the squeaky wheels that were ignored, <laughs> and uh, more and more political support uh, grew up around ethanol from not just, you know, the corn and soybean uh, processors and farmer lobbies, but energy security hawks uh, liked it, and other environmental groups liked it. They, they were of the mindset that, well, um, it's a renewable fuel, so it's got to be better than gasoline, right? And they, they didn't, um, you know, really uh, perform due diligence in checking that. So we went forward. But and let me... The- Go ahead. Let me let me point out one thing. So you you as a um, environmentalist have been opposed to ethanol really from the beginning. Yes. Yes. You are you right. you're unique in that in in the green community. That's right. I was a you know scientist working for one of the uh, environmental groups in Washington. I was their transportation uh, technical specialist. <clears throat> and and uh, so you were you were. Um, probably got some criticism for that viewpoint back in that day because it was no, not it much. was we perceived just ignored. <laughs> oh just ignored okay because yeah. it was really perceived at the time to be uh, a great solution well a lot of people thought it was um you know again it's not there weren't people who were always skeptical of it but um you know there was a you know shall we say a big hype cycle 
around ethanol and almost anything alternative. You know, uh, President Bush put, you know, directed a lot of spending into hydrogen, you know, hydrogen cars and, um, you know, natural gas vehicles as an alternative. So uh, pretty much, you know, if you could say that it was different than oil, uh, you were able to get some kind of a government handout or some kind of a government break. Uh, for it, whether it really made sense or not from e either a, a business point of view or a consumer uh, economics point of view or from an environmental point of view. So there's not a very critical look as policymakers were uh, on both sides of the aisle were looking to say, hey, we're doing something to solve this problem. We're subsidizing ethanol. We're subsidizing hydrogen. You name it. Uh, so it just became very popular as a way to respond to the public's uh, concern about um, energy security and the gas prices that had started to, to go up as they went up through that decade. Yeah. So what has changed today? Well, um, what's happened is ethanol got mandated uh, first in 2005 and then in a much bigger way in 2007, um, in January 2007, President Bush in his State of the Union uh, proposed a big plan. It was called his 20 and 10 plan to reduce American uh, oil dependence 20% over 10 years. And the centerpiece of that plan was a greatly expanded mandate for ethanol to boost the amount of ethanol and fuel from what the previous mandate uh, was which was aiming for seven and a half billion gallons uh, to 36 billion gallons, and that um, then passed Congress, uh, was signed into law in December 2007, and that's what gave us the big ethanol mandate. And of course, more and more ethanol started getting pumped into our fuel, and that's when the problem started uh, arising because now we're dealing with the reality of. Um, higher commodity prices because of this shift to ethanol. Uh, it was really brought home to people in a big way when we had a drought year of 2012. Um, you know, we, we say worry about, used to worry about the instability of oil because of the volatility in the Middle East. Well, if you're going to make fuel from a crop, you've got to worry about the weather. <laughs> you know, you're going to have good years and bad years. So uh, in 2012, uh, commodity prices spiked. Um, and because so much grain, so much corn uh, by then was being pulled into ethanol, it really started creating problems. And then from an environmental perspective, the downsides of the fuel also really began to manifest themselves. And why did they begin to manifest themselves then? Is it because the quantities were, were, were based on well, mandates the, getting higher? That's right. The quantities were getting larger. And um, for someone like myself, who I, you know, I've been studying this issue for quite a few years, and yes. you know, I sort of watched with uh, chagrin as, you know, the politics just uh, overrode the science and pushed more and more of, of the biofuels into our fuel mix. Uh, so I began studying this 
uh, you know, even more deeply. And, you know, what happens when, you know, when something is hypothetical, you know, when, when I opposed the mandate back in 2002, it was hypothetical. It hadn't happened yet. So you're, you're kind of arguing uh, based on paper studies with your paper study saying, no, this isn't going to be a good thing versus, uh, you know, the other side saying with their paper studies, well, no, this right. is going to be a wonderful thing. So, um, as more and more ethanol got put into the fuel, now we have real data. And that's what um, brings us around to my latest study. Um, I went back and looked at the data of what was actually happening on U.S. cropland from 2005 through 2013 as the country uh, almost quadrupled uh, the amount of biofuel uh, that was mandated uh, into our uh, fuel mix, replacing with ethanol, replacing gasoline, and biodiesel, replacing diesel. So now yeah. I had data to to look and say, well, okay, what's actually happening? Uh, what are the facts on the ground in a very literal sense? What's going on on cropland uh, as we've expanded this fuel? And yeah. what I found was not a pretty picture. Great. Well, that's a perfect place for us to take a break. We're talking with John DeChico of the University of Michigan's Energy Institute, and we'll be right back after this break to hear all about the results of his study. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. John DeChico, who's written a study called Carbon Balance Effects, 
of U.S. biofuel production and use. And before the break, John was just, you know, explaining to us how we got to this place at legislatively and ideologically in the country. And, uh, John, we stopped before the break with a perfect lead-in to this segment where we really want to get into the specifics of your study. But the headline-grabbing news uh, that, that came out of your study is that ethanol is worse for the climate than gasoline. Tell us about it. Okay, here's, here's why that happens. One of the most important things to keep in mind um, with any biofuel is um, when you burn the fuel, the amount of carbon dioxide, what we call CO2, that comes out of a tailpipe uh, is the same as it is for the petroleum fuels that that biofuel replaces. Um, that's just basic chemistry. Uh, I, think, I think most people would, would be not aware of that fact. I think if you were just to go down the street yep. um, and ask the average person, uh, you know, which is better, which produce, when, it, when it's burned, is it better, you know, to burn gasoline or is it better to burn ethanol? How does that impact CO2 emissions? I think most people are totally not aware of that. That's, that's right. And, you know, one, one of the reasons is there's just been so much propaganda um, generated, you know, partly by government, but partly by some environmental groups that hadn't carefully thought things through, and, of course, amplified by the ethanol lobby itself. So... Um, there's just been so much, uh, you know, verbiage about ethanol is a clean fuel, ethanol is a clean fuel. Well, there's a lot of ins and outs to that whole story, but the most certain fact of them all is that whenever you burn a biofuel, it generates CO2, it has to. That's the nature of combustion. <laughs> you know, if you burn anything, uh, you know, that's carbon-based and all of our, you know, everything is, you know, fuels all forms of energy other than, say, direct solar energy into a solar cell or something, are based on, on carbon. Carbon is quite literally the fuel of life, carbohydrates. We burn them in our bodies metabolically and we exhale CO2. And when you put any... Uh, fuel into a car, uh, it's the carbon in the fuel that is the source of most of the energy. So this whole idea that somehow these fuels are cleaner is a public perception that was largely created by propaganda that as far as CO2 is concerned has no basis in fact. Chemistry 101. <laughs> yeah. When you burn a carbon-based fuel, you get CO2. So what is important to realize is that if biofuels have a benefit in terms of how much CO2 ends up in the atmosphere, that's not when they're burned. Um, now, the claim has been that when you grow the crops that you're going to use to make the biofuel, like corn for corn ethanol or soybeans for biodiesel, um, that those crops take CO2 out of the atmosphere and they take it out such that it completely cancels out the CO2 that comes out the tailpipe. 
And, and that and, becomes what they call then carbon neutral. Is that's that correct? What they mean by carbon neutral that, uh, that somehow the fact that the fuel comes from a crop means that you don't have to count the CO2 that comes out the tailpipe. Well, that's an assumption. That's a, it sounds logical uh, on a superficial basis, but to really check that assumption, you have to go look at the cropland and look at, okay, how much CO2 are these crops actually pulling out of the air, and has that changed because we started using some of the crops to make biofuels as opposed to growing the crops to eat, you know, for food and, and or, you know, cattle feed that then we eat indirectly when we eat hamburgers and so on. So that's what I did is I went and looked at the farmland data, data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's publicly available. There's a lot of data because I had to look at, you know, how much of corn was grown, how much of soybeans, and because crops rotate, I also had to look at all the other major crops, you know, wheat, cotton, alfalfa, barley, and so on down the list. Um, so that's what uh, my research team did. Uh, we looked at those cropland data uh, from 2005 to 2013, uh, so that was the most complete data we could get uh, when we started uh -huh. the study almost two years ago. So... Um, <clears throat> What I found was that, in fact, not enough CO2 was being pulled out of the air by the crops to balance out the biofuels. In fact, only 37% as opposed to 100% of the CO2 emitted from the tailpipes was offset by the, the new crop growth by the crop growth that happened uh, over that period. So that's a huge difference because all the government models that were assuming that biofuels were better essentially assumed that those tailpipe CO2 emissions were 100% completely balanced out by CO2 pulled out of the air when the crops grow. And I found no, there was only enough CO2 being pulled out of the air to balance a little more than a third of those tailpipe emissions. And so when you have that large a discrepancy um, in a very, you know, sort of the most important factor when you evaluate biofuels, uh, that essentially changed the result of computer models that claim biofuels were better to making them worse. So what's the key component there? I mean, I know because you spent an hour on the phone with me helping me to understand this, but what's the key piece that maybe what others have not considered in this that your report looked at? Uh, what's actually going on on cropland. That's what it comes down to. Amazing as it sounds, all of the paper studies uh, done you know, by scientists, some of them well-meaning, um, a lot of them, you know, I would say many of the government ones, though, were really, um, you know, uh, kind of working, you know, because of the big taxpayer political support for ethanol, were not necessarily being the most objective about their studies. Um, but uh, all these computer model studies just made an assumption about what was happening on cropland that was simply not true in the real world. So the problem well, comes... a convenient assumption. 
It, yeah, it yeah, definitely a story that supported this big expansion of biofuels. Uh, and I, you know what I suspect is, and, and I can I see this going on is the you know the, the parts of the scientific community that are closely allied with the biofuel industry, both government scientists and some non-government scientists, are very reluctant to go back and check the field data, check the cropland data in a correct way because, uh, you know, anyway, it would really, it, it rocks the boat. And, of course, that's what my study is doing and why I'm getting a lot of pushback from those folks. Yeah, I would imagine you are. I, I want to make sure that we're, for our listeners that we're clear on the concept is or the problem is, and this is what I had a hard time grasping with you, uh, but you were gracious to hang with me till I understood it, is that that land would, grew was growing corn before it was growing corn for ethanol. And, and that's, so that's why you can't say it cancels it out, because that land was, in order for it to be new CO2 absorption, that land would have had to have had no crops on it, no plants, no weeds. It would have had to have been barren dirt that's, before they started. So really, they're double counting uh, the CO2. look at it, Marita. Yep. Their, their models are make it as if that before the biofuel was produced, the land was barren desert. And then all of a sudden, it's a highly productive cornfield, and they credit the CO2 that that cornfield pulls out of the air uh, to cancel out the CO2 when the biofuel is burned. So when, when you, you know, really think about it, it's a, it's a pretty gross error that they made, um, but that's the reality. And they were, I would say people were getting away from it because it wasn't being critically looked at for years. And, you know, I was suspicious, of course, years ago, as we mentioned in the first segment uh, about all of this. But when I finally did the math and looked at the data, it was, the situation was even worse than I had imagined, you know, 15 years ago when I, you know, was first getting really skeptical of the whole proposition. Yeah, and the problem, as you explained, comes in that um, the corn that was growing on that, on that land before in general is feedstock corn. And there is now in the United States less acreage for feedstock, which means it feeds our, our cows and pigs and, and uh, chickens. And there's less less land for feedstock. So now that land that but we're still eating. We're still we that's still right. need that that corn. So that's being grown somewhere else. That's right, and that that compounds the problem. That makes the problem even worse. Uh, you know, we use now nearly 40% of our corn harvest to make ethanol, and uh, we certainly don't eat 40% less corn-based products, whether it's, you know, corn chips and tortillas and cornbread or corn syrup on our soft drinks or whether it's, you know, the corn that is, you know, used to feed cattle and our, our hamburgers and steaks. So uh, that gets made up somewhere else, and that, that makes the problem even worse because then those replacement crops end up being grown um, in some cases by uh, busting sod uh, in, in some of the prairie regions, and that's been documented uh, in studies that I cite. People, other researchers have been documenting that. Uh, and, of course, when you tear up a prairie, 
you end up releasing the carbon that was stored stored in those soils, and then uh, there's also a, a ripple effect internationally, where to you know to make up corn that's grown here. Um, you know, we started growing more corn here. A lot of that has displaced soybeans we used to grow here. We're growing a little more soybeans, but not nearly as much as we're growing more corn. So uh, a good example, corn does not grow so much uh, in most of Brazil, but soybeans do. And so what you have is this ripple effect is to compensate for the soybeans that were displaced by the corn. They'll grow, they'll take some pasture land in Brazil and convert that to a soybean field, and then that the cattle people in Brazil will then cut down some of the forest to make new pasture, and that also throws huge quantities of carbon up into the atmosphere when those forests are chopped down because they keep only sort of the best part of the trees for timber, which doesn't get burned. The rest of it, they either burn or it lets, you know, decay. And so sends carbon up into the atmosphere that way. So, you know, when you add all of these effects up, which I, I do in my paper, uh, it's actually a horror story. I mean, it's not yeah. just a little bit worse than gasoline. It's been a lot worse. Yeah. We're out of time. I appreciate you clarifying that for our listeners. We've been talking with John DeChico, uh, research professor at the University of Michigan. Thanks so much for your time, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we are once again talking about ethanol. And we're talking about ethanol now because of this newly released study, as we talked about in our last two segments with Professor John DeChico from the University of Michigan. In this segment, we're going to have some response to this study and why this study is important. We're talking with Marlo Lewis once again, and he is a senior fellow with the Competitive 
Enterprise Institute. And Marlo, it's interesting, I had told a, a radio show that I was on last week that this is what I was going to be writing on for this week, and uh, he forwarded to me your blog post on this study. And so I emailed him back and said, yes, that's the exact study that I'm going to be talking about. So I know that you have followed uh, John DeChico's work as I have. And by the way, welcome to America's Voice for Energy. Well, thank you, Marita. <clears throat> yes, uh, I know that John De, John DeChico has been has been uh, pursuing pursuing this line of research for several years and has published several studies uh, reaching the same basic conclusion that that the conventional mode of analysis done by the Environmental Protection Agency, the California Air Resources Board, um, other experts in the carbon intensity of, of competing fuels, whether petroleum-based fuels or biofuels, um, has has basically been assuming the correctness of a dogma, and we can get into that, but, but that that dogma is, in fact, an error. And once you make the correction, you find that uh, that petroleum-based fuels are actually less carbon-intensive than the biofuels that are supposed to replace them. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty shocking analysis uh, for most people uh, because it, it only stands to reason that uh, fuel from a plant is going to be better for the environment than fuel from uh, petroleum. And, but So the, he really is upending um, that basic premise. He is. Uh, I mean, people have taken it as an a priori assumption, in other words, uh, a fact that you don't have to check against observation, that crops grown for energy, like corn for, for ethanol, are carbon neutral. In other words, that whatever carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere when the ethanol is burned in a gas tank or when the the ethanol is actually being produced, and you have CO2 emissions from fermentation of the of the sugars in corn. That that carbon dioxide is just absorbed in the next year's biofuel crop, uh, and so unlike with fossil fuels, where you're taking uh, dead plants, ancient dead plants that were have been in the ground for millions of years and putting it into the atmosphere, well, eventually it'll it'll be absorbed back into the the biosphere, but that could take thousands of years. But the assumption here is that every year we have as much carbon dioxide going back into energy crops as they emit when they are when they are either burned or processed, and that's what he actually his team at the University of Michigan decided to check with observations. Um, and what they found is that uh, they looked at the actual locations where biofuels are grown, and they found that when they did the math, a lot more CO2 was going into the atmosphere than was being reabsorbed by next year's crop and the soils from which the crop is produced. And it, it was a rather significant gap, as they call it. Um, in my blog post, I, I excerpt one of the graphs um, from the from the study, which shows the gap, it clearly illustrates the gap. But but he found his team found that during 2005 to 2003, which was the study period, 
that, quote, the additional uptake of carbon dioxide on U.S. cropland, um, and, and that's additional because more crops are being planted to grow the corn or, or the soy to develop biofuels, that the additional uptake of, the, of carbon on U.S. cropland was enough to offset only 37% of the biofuel-related carbon dioxide combustion and fermentation emissions, not 100% as is assumed by the Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Department of Energy, California Air Resources Board. So the big takeaway from this study is I understand it, and, you know, I, I mean, I can't, I, I couldn't do this study, and, and but this time, this this time I think I, I pretty much understand it on reading it, is that during this nine-year period where they were actually looking at emissions and the absorption of them, that corn ethanol was actually 27% more carbon-intensive than gasoline. And that's before you consider any of the other uh, stages in the life cycle where emissions would be released, for example, in producing the fertilizers to grow the corn, in uh, delivering the, the corn from the fields to the, to the ethanol plants, uh, transporting the ethanol from the plants to retail out, outlets. So that's before you even look at those other emissions. And it also does not, um, you know, th this is also before any uh, consideration of the carbon that might be released from soils when you convert a grassland or a forest into a corn field or a soy plantation in order to grow biofuels. So anyway, I thought this was quite an interesting study, and if it's valid, it, it changes everything about the, um, about the validity of the Renewable Fuel Standard Program because it would mean that Basically, uh, you know, the main part of the of the renewable fuels under this program, which is corn ethanol, don't really qualify as renewable, and so shouldn't get yeah. a mandate, mandated preference under the law. Yeah, and you know, it, the whole idea behind ethanol was really twofold. It was to to help us with energy security. Well, of course, now thanks to hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling, um, you know, that is what has helped us with energy security, not ethanol. And the other thing was the supposed uh, climate change benefits in CO2 emissions. And both of those things are now really off the table. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. The, so, so then the question is, well, why do we still have this thing or what? And here's the reason. There's a third factor that, or a third objective of this program. It, it's a traditional farm program, which means that it's corporate welfare for a certain segment of the agricultural industry. And it was designed to enrich corn farmers um, mainly. And that has that is what it has done because, as you uh, as you mandate um, the additional production of corn and soy and so on, you bid up the price of farmland. And, and so this is this is not, you know, the fact that there's a guaranteed market for, for ethanol made from corn is a wealth transfer from, from consumers and refiners to 
to the corn ethanol industry, but also it, uh, this has, by increasing the demand for these crops, it's also increased the demand for the land to grow them, and so it's been a real estate windfall for a segment of the agricultural community. Now, people will say, oh, well, Marlo, you're being heartless. Don't you care about farmers? Well, I do, but you've got to understand that one of the effects of this program has been to make, to make the feed that is used for livestock production more expensive. So the wealth transfer is not just from consumers and refiners to the corn ethanol industry, but also from chicken farmers, hog farmers, cattle farmers, um, turkey, you know, any, um, any livestock farmer uh, that, that depends upon these grains uh, to, to feed the chickens and so on has had to pay more. And it's been a substantial hit in certain years particularly, such as uh, 2012 when there was a drought. Um, those people were really hurting. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm as pro-farmer as the next guy, but I don't think the government should try to pick winners and losers in the marketplace. Well, certainly not. You know, you mentioned that uh, now that this information is out, you you might wonder why are we why do we still have this mandate? Well, obviously, this study is brand new. It's just just come out in the last week or two, so it'll take a while for it to uh, you know trickle into policy. Do you have hope that this study will trickle into policy? I do, I do, because um, and. It's, it's because of our environmental allies. Um, it, the environmental working group uh, in particular, I know, has been um, a big booster of the Chico's work over the years. Um, and I know that the Chico has testified before Congress. Anyway, you know, this is one study. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this, and so... Uh, before any, as, as you know, science is an iterative process, and what what ensures that a study is valid is not the fact that it was peer-reviewed. Um, that just ensures that it's, or it, it used to ensure that the study was at least interesting. Um, but it's really <laughs> when it's when rival teams of scientists uh, audit each other's work and challenge each other's work. But if this stands up um, under the pressure of that competitive process, you know, eventually the truth will out, and it should then uh, make it very difficult uh, to, to uh, continue to justify the Renewable Fuel Standard Program if, in fact, one of its major goals uh, is, is, uh, is actually being undermined by the program itself. Yeah, what do you, we've just got about a minute and a half left. What do you think um, the presidential election, or do you feel that the presidential election will have an impact on the future of ethanol policy, regardless of where this, what this study does or doesn't say? Uh, you know, it's well. Let's, if if Hillary is elected, um, I don't see I don't see much hope for changing the status quo. Um, if Trump on is ethanol. elected, uh, yeah, on ethanol. If Trump is elected, 
It's not clear. You know, he actually said some nice things about ethanol, and at yes. one point when he was in Iowa, he said he was going to have a major paper out on it. And it was going to be huge and uh, and beautiful, and and I don't I I don't think that white paper was ever produced. the the thing The thing about Trump is, uh, you know, my impression, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that he often speaks about things. Uh, he, he, he speaks about, he, in other words, he, uh, he articulates any idea that pops into his head at the time, and it's not necessarily a settled conviction. So there might be some more room for reform under a Trump presidency on the ethanol mandate. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that assessment. We're out of time. I appreciate your insights, Marlo, as I know you have followed this ethanol issue uh, for a long time, and uh, we'll hope that DeChico's study here will, will have some impact on ethanol policy in the future. Here, here. <laughs> Great. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy, heard each week here on AmericasWebRadio.com. Please stay tuned. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're now in our closing segment of today's show where we've been talking about ethanol, the renewable fuel standards, and specifically in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the impacts to consumers from the renewable fuel standard. And back with us on America's Voice for Energy, I'm pleased to welcome Tom Pyle, who is the president of the American Energy Alliance. Thanks for joining us again today, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So we've been talking about, obviously, ethanol and the renewable fuel standard. What's your position on, on this policy? Um, the RFS, to me, is the embodiment of government gone wild. Um, it is probably the worst program that Congress has ever conceived, and that's saying a lot. The that is saying here, a lot because there's, there's plenty of government gone wild examples. So what makes this one so, so bad? So, you know, the ethanol industry started out with, with guaranteed um, tax uh, favorability and um, guaranteed um, restrictions on imports from competing products. 
And when the gravy train started running out, they switched their strategy and, and went after what they called now the RFS, or, or I just call it the ethanol mandate. It basically mandates that this product be used in fuel. Um, now, it may have market, um, it may have some favorable um, characteristics in gasoline, but that really ought to be up to refiners. Um, it really ought to be up to the folks who make gasoline. Uh, and instead, it's basically based on arbitrary estimates of fuel demand that was back in 2005 and 2007 when it was both created and, and then revised upward. Wild projections about you know how much fuel we would use and how much ethanol should be blended into the fuel. It has no correlation to to the market. It has no correlation to the value of the product. It is simply a a dream cooked up by the ethanol lobby, which, by the way, is pretty powerful in this town in Washington. And um, it, it's just completely arbitrary, and it doesn't have any sort of bearing with reality. And it's wrought with fraud, by the way. Yeah, I wrote on the fraud issue, the, the Wren fraud, a few months ago. I uh, did a story on that when they, I read about someone being arrested in, I believe it was Indiana, um, or I, maybe they'd been sentenced by then. They'd been, they'd been, you know, arrested previously, and they'd finally been sentenced. But uh, yeah, the fraud, is, the fraud in, the, in it is unbelievable. But again, it's set up for fraud. The way the the whole program uh, is was created is is set up for fraud. Yeah, absolutely. The the RIN is just sort of the the, the bureaucracy that was created by the folks who are implementing the program to sort of keep tabs on refinery industry to make sure that they're either blending enough fuel or in in, in some cases um, you know basically paying credits um, for for the ethanol and biodiesel that's blended into the gasoline it, it, which of course ultimately ends up hurting the consumer price wise absolutely um, it's a less efficient fuel if you know people have this this flex fuel vehicle choice where you have like an e85 option um, right. People don't choose it because they have to go to the to the pump and fill their tanks more often if they use E85, and so it's less efficient. Um, and I know that uh, there have been discussions about its impact on the environment. Basically, every policy justification or rationale that was given for the program has bared false um, over the years, and it is truly time for Congress to fully repeal the program. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you, there's been a lot of talk. I mean, we did, when was it that the actual ethanol subsidy went away? Was that 2012, if I recall? Well, the subsidies, the tax credits and the um, the import uh, tariffs all sort of phased out while the program was phasing in, uh, the mandate was phasing in in the mid to late 2000s. Um, okay. But since then, basically the whole thing has been tied to these volumes that the EPA sets um, for ethanol and biofuel. The program consists of corn-based ethanol, but also what they call advanced biofuels, which are wildly more expensive even than ethanol. And those things are supposed to be increasing over the years. In fact, the cost of this program, the impact to consumers, is only being felt on a small level at the moment, if they were to truly implement the program the way they envisioned it, some of the biofuels 
that they're uh, mandating be blended into gasoline could cost upwards of $8 a gallon. But they've had no, to my understanding, they've had no real commercial success in producing these advanced biofuels, even at any price. That's right, and then we still pay for that, too, because refiners are then required to pay a, quote-unquote, pay a fine for, for not blending a product that doesn't exist in commerce. That's how crazy it is. Yeah, and it's certainly not because uh, uh, the fraudsters haven't tried. I mean, there's been plenty of people on the green gravy train that have uh, tried, take, happily taken taxpayer dollars to attempt to produce this cellulosic ethanol and, and failed. That's right, and that's an additional hidden cost. You know, everyone keeps talking about how renewable energy and these renewables are becoming more and more affordable. The proponents of that line, they just ignore the fact that these, these things are heavily subsidized by you and me in the form of our taxes. Yeah, the uh, South Australia electricity story, which I wrote on last week, is kind of a uh, perfect example of that. When you look at that story, uh, there's really no way that you can conclude that wind and solar are cheaper when you look at what's happened to their electricity prices in South Australia since they've gotten rid of coal totally, cut back, shut down gas, natural gas, and are 41% reliant on uh, wind. But, but I digress. Let's go back to what's happening in Congress. As I said, uh, and you, you uh, uh, confirmed, the subsidies, the tax credits for the basic corn ethanol more or less went away uh, at the end of, of um, the late 2000s. So where are we now? There's a lot of talk of um, getting rid of these mandates. Uh, where are we now? Sure. Um, there's been a few attempts to um, what I call reform uh, the, the mandate. Uh, one attempt by uh, uh, Senator Pat Toomey would have eliminated simply the corn ethanol component of the RFS and basically continue to cr create a market share for the even less reliable and even more expensive um, types of biofuels. We oppose that approach because it really doesn't solve the issue. No, um, no, all not. It, all it does is, is um, get rid of corn, you know, get rid of the guaranteed market share for a product that actually, if left to its own devices, does have some value and, and refiner. Right. Every refiner I've talked to um, uh, says, oh, no, we would still use ethanol um, because it's a good oxygenate. It increases the octane. We would still use it in a, in a smaller percent. That's right. Um, and so uh, another attempt is to tie the, the, the ethanol mandate to the actual um, production of, of fuel in commerce. So the amount of, of fuel that we consume and sort of have a cap on the blend um, of the ethanol, that's an approach by um, Congressman Flores from Texas, which we're actually looking at now and, and, and considering getting our hands around and supporting because it is actually a, a, an improvement on the program. Ideally, we would like to see it be repealed. But at least it wouldn't uh, force these arbitrary um, volumes into the conversation. It would uh, help to eliminate some of the fraud that we talked about and things like that. A full repeal of the mandate is going to be really difficult. Um, the outcome of the election might not change that either because both candidates have expressed support for the program in some form. Donald Trump has recently sort of modified his position on it. Uh, I, th I think he could, be, he, he could uh, 
easily be brought around with the right facts. I think so, too. I think that's that's um, definitely in the cards. I mean, he seems to be someone, at least in, in, these, in this issue set, has been fairly consistent that he wants to see the government get out of the energy business in right, a general right. sense. Um, unlike, of course, Hillary Clinton, who wants to double down on, on all of the Obama policies, of which this is an integral, integral part. Right. So, yeah, she yeah, loves, she loves some... renewable energy, so-called renewable energy. I mean, you know, the Democrat platform calls for, what, 100% renewable energy by 2050? Yeah. The dirty little secret in all of this is that the EPA manages this program, and they haven't, uh, they haven't done a good job. More importantly, there are some big decisions that have to be made in the coming years about transitioning and ramping up these biofuels that don't exist. And, and I suspect that they don't want to be the ones who uh, are responsible for saddling, you know, uh, th- this nonsensical program onto American uh, motorists. So there might be some support to reform it or phase it out or, or change the way that it works. We are going to strive, obviously, for full repeal because it makes the most sense. You know, it would be great if Congress just owned up to its mistakes every now and then and admitted that they botched this thing and and worked towards getting the thing repealed. But the problem is, of course, is Iowa, the primaries, the ethanol lobby has basically sprinkled their you know special interest money all over town. Um, they hide behind the farmer. But actually, we make the argument that this policy ultimately hurts corn farmers because if there were truly a free market for ethanol, the corn farmers would win out over the biofuels that are not, you know, commercially viable. And how would they win out? Because, as we mentioned, there is a market for ethanol, and the most efficient form of ethanol is corn ethanol. The newer generation ethanol refineries or ethanol plants are able to extract more value out out of the input, out of the corn product, and and it's a good it's a good blend to to get to the um, oxygenate requirements and the octane requirements that are increasingly being asked for by the auto industry because they are being forced, ironically, because of another government mandate to make more <laughs> fuel efficient cars in the form of the the, the cafe. Yeah, and, and ironically, it's those fuel efficient cars in a way that have kind of messed up the plan that Congress laid out back in two thousand five slash two thousand and seven. Exactly. You know, because they you know, expected those increasing volumes to be based on more gallons of gasoline being consumed, and those fuel-efficient cars are consuming less gallons of gasoline. And, of course, the bad economy has added to less, fewer people going to work, therefore uh, less gasoline being consumed. Yeah, Marita, and that is the ultimate paradox here is, you know, these policies are being devised and uh, constructed in a vacuum, you know the the ag committee, the, you know writes the RFS, the commerce committee cooked up the cafe standards. No one's talking to each other, and no one really is better at making things run more smoothly with less environmental impact than the free market. And and ultimately, yeah. if we don't get the government out of the energy business, they're just going to keep putting band aids and uh, onto the onto the the, the wounds that they themselves create. 
Yeah, and there's a good point for us to end. We're out of time talking about getting the government out of the energy business. There's a good goal. We've been talking with Tom Pyle, who is the president of the American Energy Alliance on America's Voice for Energy, heard each week on America's web radio. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.